from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we'll be talking to a very special guest, Steve Streeting. If you're into source control, this episode's for you. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. And hello, Steve. How are you doing? Hello, I'm good, thank you. And hello, Mark. I'm also spiffy. Much better than the last time we did one of these. Your voice sounds better. You don't sound like you have a frog in your throat or (laughs) claws have been scraping your throat. I'm hoping I can actually be slightly more involved in this particular discussion, given that we welcome to local host Mr. Steve Streeting. Thank you very much. Famously a fellow Channel Islander. Indeed, yes. We both live on a small rock. Yours is slightly larger than mine, but I'm not going to let that put me off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> probably also the thing you are least famous for to be fair <laughs> yeah it's funny uh it, it tends to come up occasionally and people will say you know where is that place that you come from again and i have to point it out on the map and everyone gets very confused <laughs> well it's very interesting to having all of us sitting on little islands of relative different sizes if you kind of look at it that way but you guys are in the sunnier nicer parts of the world so I'm not going to be jealous. <laughs> we try not to mention it too much. <laughs> yeah. Every four seconds in the episode, it's like, oh, yes, it's nice and sunny out here. Nice yeah, sunny. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty lovely out uh, in, in Jersey today, uh, which means that it's a perfect <laughs> opportunity to sit inside and record an interview for an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we shall release you soon enough, Rob, but we need your services for this uh, interview. Um, so, Steve... For the people at home, give us a, a brief background of your career and your history as a developer. Well, um, it kind of depends how long you've got, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm fairly old at this point, and <laughs> I, I started a long time ago when uh, there was no internet and everyone used mainframes to do anything serious. So I started my career doing mainframe code. I worked in COBOL. Okay. I did uh, C and C++ for various different platforms. I always tinkered with game development and graphics and that sort of thing. And I, I kind of lived a double life for quite a while doing mm-hmm. business software during the day and open source and graphic software in, in the evening and weekends. But I mean, over time, I've kind of switched back and forwards a few times and done some development tools, as this is concerned with. Uh, I'm doing games at the moment, but I've done graphics before. So I've kind of jumped around an awful lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I should really go into too much detail because we'll be here all, all day. Well, that's um, a nice variety of stuff. If you ever want to know. Well, I think, Steve, from. From my perspective, it would be really good just to quickly summarise, because you were the big things that people might recognise you from. Obviously, one of them we're going to be talking to you about in some detail, and that's uh, the source tree uh, GUI for Git, effectively. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, you were involved in a project called Ogre? Yeah, that's right. I, I started Ogre in, well, it was sort of late 99, early 2000. It was like my second or third 3D engine that I, I made. Oh, wow. And I had this wonderful idea that we could bring a more friendly object-oriented approach to graphic systems, which at the time were were quite specific and not necessarily super friendly, or if they were super friendly, they were extremely expensive. So I just kind of wanted to make games myself, and I kept hitting this problem where you just have to build all your technology yourself. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought, well, I'm still going to have to do it anyway, but how about I just try and collaborate with a few more people and get it done a bit faster maybe and get some feedback because, you know, I need as much information as, as I can get in terms of how to make these things. So... Yeah, it, it kind of it was a bit of an accident. I put it on SourceForge originally back in 2000, must be late 2000. 
only really because I needed to back my code up more. Right. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't really know what open source was at the time. And I'd, I'd done a lot of public domain stuff in the past, so I did some demos, um, you know, for the PC and for the Amiga and stuff like that. And you just release stuff, you know, randomly to FTP sites. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what, that's how you collaborated with people. But open source was fairly new to me, at least. And I just discovered it while looking for somewhere to put this code that is getting bigger and bigger and I was paranoid about losing. And I put it on SourceForge, read up pretty much as I went what um, open source meant, uh, learned how to run an open source project by accident and was surprised when lots of people just followed along and, and joined in. And, you know, a few months, a few a few years later, it was quite a big thing, which was totally unplanned, but was, uh, you know, very, very welcome. So an, an an accidental introduction to open source, mm. and presumably again all of the the pitfalls that come with it in terms of managing collaborative access to source code. You can see where I'm going, by the yeah. way, with this uh, a beautiful little segue <laughs> into you know your your next big project and probably the reason that I know your name specifically, which was uh, you you went on to build Source Tree. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I became like the de facto controller of a whole bunch of different source control systems because, like I said, I was doing business software by day and I was doing open source by night and by nature of those things I happened to end up in control of a whole bunch of different repositories because I was kind of a team leader as well during the day so mm-hmm. and people kind of because I'd had a lot of experience with CVS and things like that before a lot of other people have really encountered them I was already fairly familiar with the workflows that you would you would use to control this stuff particularly with lots of distributed people and I ended up you know, looking after CVS for the open source system, uh, Subversion for business projects. And then eventually, as time went on, I was introduced to the idea of DBCS, which um, didn't start with Git. There were things like Darks and other things going around at the time. But I didn't really understand them for quite a while. And actually, my first introduction to Git was when I went to a Google Summer of Code meetup in, in at Google's headquarters in, I think it was 2008, something like that, because Ogre had participated in, in Summer of Code for a number of years. And I think that was the first year, though. And the Git people were there as well. And they, they did a presentation about his, his Git, here's why it's great. And I really didn't get it for quite a while, but we talked about it a lot in the open source forums. And eventually, you know, a bunch of us saying, well, you know, maybe this thing is actually going to be quite useful. You know, we have these little pain points with Subversion and with CVS before that. And hey, maybe we could maybe we could use this ability to, you know, do everything locally and then merge things later and actually merges that work and don't explode when you try and put two things together. You know, it's uh, that's a, that was a really normal thing <laughs> at the time. So, yeah, I was kind of introduced to that. And we, we evaluated both Git and Mercurial for quite a while, about a year. We trialed, we, we actually ran the the master subversion repository and two other repositories in parallel that synchronized both in uh, Mercurial and Git. And we just tried them out and just, you know, saw how we got on. And it's important to recognize at the time that back in 2008, 2009, Git really did not run very well on Windows. Mm-hmm. It did to a degree, but it was not officially supported at all. Mm. Um, and had all kinds of issues with speed and, and it it did for quite a while, but reliability was was a bit of a problem. So at the time, Mercurial was was a more robust solution, and it was also quite useful for people who weren't necessarily experts in source code management and wanted a, a smoother transition from what they'd been used to with Subversion and to a distributed system. And Mercurial is a little bit easier when it comes to, to doing that. So yeah, I I ended up kind of being the manager of that as well, that transition. And there were other projects I was doing at the time which also were having the same kind of transition. And as it came out from that, I happened to be the maintainer of the Mac version of Ogre at the time. 
and the dots sort of connected. I was like, I was messing around in Subversion and Mercurial and Git all at the same time. I was having problems with different clients in on the Mac particularly. I wasn't very happy with the kind of clients that were available. So I thought, well, I'd quite like to learn how to make something GUI natively in, in Mac. I had done a little bit of Objective-C mm-hmm. because the sort of window manager part of Ogre it has to be written in each of the platform's window management systems. So that tends to be native to each of those uh, individual platforms. So there's this little bit of code which sits on the top and was written in Objective-C for, for the Mac. So I was kind of intrigued by this because it was I've done C and C++ for, for many, many years. And it was interesting how it was kind of a little, little spur off of C that behaved slightly differently and had a few different ideas from Smalltalk and other things like that. And I was quite curious as to how you would go about building something with that. So all those sort of things came together and I thought, well, why don't I just try and build a, a version control system to, to scratch my itch and to solve or satisfy my curiosity around building something for the Mac and it just kind of span out from there. But that's a quite a brief thing because at that time I remember when Sorcery came out, it had a very individual look mm-hmm. for a Mac software. I mean, if I'm thinking back of a lot of the software that I was trying that was Git-based stuff, I'm trying to think of some of, not Git-based stuff, but Aqua Studio and things like that looked awful. They were using the Mac software guidelines, but badly. But then Sorcery came out and it was, if I remember, it was a little bit flatter. It, it had the, you know, the nice lines showing you the branching and everything else. And this is a, a compliment, but it, it was a beautiful bit of software for me to be in for doing a, quite a boring task, really, which is you know, version control is not exciting. It's not actually getting my job done. But it was actually a joy to use compared to the other bits of software that I had to spend a long time in that were using the native OS. So how did you get that? What was your motivation to get that look going? Well, was it? Uh, thanks. So, <laughs> the thing is, um, I'm not a designer by any stretch of the imagination. And at the time, I just had an idea in my head of what, the way I wanted to see things happen. And it was mostly around, um, I, I'm quite lazy and I'm also quite forgetful. So mm-hmm. I always build things that can make it easy for me to rediscover things that I've forgotten. And also not necessarily to hide things from myself, but to make them perhaps more discoverable in a natural way. So I try to oversimplify things. And, and there, there are some, you know, there's definitely some design decisions around how simple you make something versus how much you expose all at once. And there's various guidelines about, you know, how many things you can hold in your head at once and how many things you can encounter within a short space of time and it not being overwhelming. So I guess I kind of eyeballed it based on my experiences. And I was just fortunate that enough other people had similar kinds of experiences or similar kinds of preferences to what I had. Um, that it resonated with people. And I think the early version's design wasn't amazing, but it was good enough that it made sense to people who thought like I did, and luckily that was a fair number of people. Later on, when we ended up having a proper designer on it, then there were all kinds of improvements that were made, you know, to make it look a lot nicer. And particularly, the thing with the Mac is it evolves quite quickly in Mm -hmm. terms of the amount of changes to the default design. And to a degree, that's handled for you with Coco. It kind of adapts a lot of things automatically. As soon as like the operating system updates, you start getting controls that look different or look you know native to that particular version. So you do have some advantages in that if you're building something in right. you know an emulated layer like Electron or something like that, you end up having to style all your controls yourself. And therefore, if the underlying operating system changes its mind about how that should look, you've then got to obviously try and match up with those versions. 
Yeah, so you're constantly loading asset kits yeah. to try and match yeah. the different variant versions of the OS or just completely go your own way, which is probably flying in the face of however many decades of UX design by the good people at Apple and Microsoft. Yeah, so my, my initial one of my initial principles was I it had to be native. I mean, I'm very much a native developer by nature anyway. I've always done, you know, C and C++ and I've always written to the platform. I've never really used a lot of abstractions in the past. So I was always quite keen on that. And it obviously has the benefit of adapting quite well with whatever version of OS you happen to have. Although, you know, keeping on top of that is sometimes a bit of a, a bit of a challenge because Apple likes to change things and uh, doesn't do backwards compatibility mm-hmm. a great deal. Or certainly not as much as some other platform holders. So, yeah, that's, that can be a challenge, but at least they give you the ability to keep in step. There's a great video of someone using a VM to go from Windows <laughs> 3, I'm going to guess, maybe if there was something earlier and they modify the there is something earlier and it's going to be like dos some dos shelling program and uh, they modified one of the colors or a couple of the colors of the desktop and then upgraded Uh each version of windows in the vm all the way up to i think it was vista and the colors disappeared for one version but came back for another (laughs) So that, you know, Windows for backwards compatibility, you have to take, you know, your hat off to them because it's it's built in there compared to OS X, which has twice now gone. Oh, yeah, these, you know, we went to Universal Apps at one point and it's like, yeah, this app's not universal. You can't actually run it anymore. Yeah, the funny thing is, the funny, thing, the funny difference with Windows and, and Mac is that Windows does like binary backwards compatibility very well and doesn't really break APIs that often, which is, which is quite mm-hmm. nice. But at the same time, they can never seem to decide what their windowing api is going to look like you know between year year one and year five it uh it's changed so many times in in my lifetime i've used you know the plain win32 api i've used mfc i've used you know various other windowing systems they've they've changed their mind when it comes to uh you know their their core recommended uh windowing api so many times it's uh it's quite crazy right when I came to build the Windows version of Sorcery, I picked the thing that was most common at the time. But, you know, they changed their mind even during, even while I was developing that, which is uh, incredible. But swings and roundabouts. So cycling back to the Sorcery journey, and you kind of, you know, you've answered some of the, the origin story, if you will. Were there any specific lessons or, or things that you learned, given that, as you say, this was a, a scratcher itch, this was not necessarily the first native application you'd built, but it was probably the first full project end-to-end that you'd done in this language. So what, what were some of the lessons that you learned from building something that actually turned out to be, yet again, an incredibly popular tool for, effectively, a bunch of developers who, let's face it, are not exactly known for putting their punches if they don't like something? Yeah, so, I mean, I was lucky in a way in that this wasn't my first rodeo in, in a way. I'd, I'd already been through accidentally building Ogre to something that was way bigger than I ever expected and, and dealing with the community that grew from that. Of course, this time I was actually asking people for money up front, which was a bit different. Um, at least when I originally released it, it was for uh, $60 at the time. But the thing I learned, I guess, was that it always helps to have a personal interest and a personal view on the thing that you're building. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I've, I've not built things for other people that much in recent decades. I've always built something that is both for myself and hopefully for more people within a certain range of taste, you know. 
And that's really useful because it, there is no single solution that will solve everybody's problems and be useful to everybody and, and certainly to everyone's tastes. So everybody will give you feedback and that's really useful and, and so valuable when it comes to, particularly when you're developing in the early stages. But they will all disagree at various different times and have different <laughs> spins on it. So you really have to know what your particular take is because even though you should definitely be listening to what everybody else is saying at some point someone's got to make a choice right you've got to say right i can't have everything in this it can't be both extremely simplistic and also very powerful i can try and combine those to a degree but at some point i have to pick a path you know and i can only really figure out how to do that when i have a personal investment in it because at least then i can say well I totally understand your opinion on this and your opinion on this, but this is the one I'm picking and this is why. And I can explain that because that is my view and they can agree or disagree, but eventually someone has to make that call. And maybe I just like making those kind of calls, but at the, at the end of the day, it's useful to have have that <laughs> clarity because otherwise I find a lot of, lot of projects end up trying to be too many things to too many people. Mm-hmm. And that is very difficult to rein in once you've started going down that route. Once you've started trying to please everybody, then everybody else has really tried to please them. So why don't you try and please me as well? And, you know, you've lost control of the thing at that point. So I think it's really good to have a vision of some sort and don't be totally uh, inflexible about it. You need to listen to what other people say because you can be wrong, obviously. Mm -hmm. But as long as you have a reason and you have a a vision that is explainable to people, then you're probably going to be okay is, is the answer, I think. And do you think, uh, obviously, with Sorcery, it was your project, so fundamentally what you said went at the end of the day. Do you think that the same kind of issues can face open source projects, uh, presumably to a a greater degree, where you've got potentially that lack of kind of a a project stakeholder or a a real true primary visionary dictator? Yeah. Uh, Um, (laughs) Apply whatever term you want. It's it's funny because you would think, I mean, maybe it happened differently with, with other projects, but in my experience with open source projects and both as a leader of one and as a contributor to to some others i've always found that there is always maybe one or two people who are effectively in charge even if that's in charge of a a part of it mm-hmm. if it's big enough that you know not no one person can control over it or no one or two people control over it i think there is always this sort of benign dictator person there and maybe they're very overt about it and maybe they're not maybe they they're just under the surface and people just naturally listen to them either because they've got a lot of experience or because they're just very good at at organizing a group of people and arriving at at, uh, an answer when it needs to be needs to be found but i think there always is somebody or or sometimes you know a small group of people it's never more than two or three in any particular size of project or part of a project who are making those decisions and coalescing all of those different inputs because if there isn't then the project doesn't go anywhere it just fragments and just disintegrates into into something which is un, unwieldy so i think that is always there and it just depends on whether that's particularly overt or not I, I think you know when i'm contributing to a project i always end up deferring to the person who knows more than i do you know who is being in control of it and who, who has you know seen the reasons behind a bunch of the decisions before because that's natural you, you don't go into a project wanting to suddenly run it off the rails somewhere else you know maybe some people do but that's not a successful way to contribute to an open source project you need to you know accept that you're joining an ecosystem and that ecosystem has a vision of some sort it wouldn't exist if it didn't so you know you become part of that so i think that just naturally happens with groups of people who contribute to something i don't think it's anything that you necessarily have to plan it just ends up happening uh, either way 
I think I should probably say at this point that I obviously don't control Source Three anymore. I don't even work on it anymore. It's been, uh, well, I left Atlassian just over nine months ago now, mm-hmm. and I didn't work on it very much for you know eighteen months before that. So I was going to say for those who don't necessarily know the history, so you mm-hmm. started, you created this thing as a commercial piece of software, and then I would say it's almost every software developer's dream. Um, did you? I mean, how did that happen? Did you get a phone call? Were you in discussion with the guys at Atlassian for a long time ahead of it, or was it something that they just said, "Steve, we really like this. We want it. Have lots of money." It was basically an email, not not a phone call. But basically, apart from that, that's exactly what it was. I mean, I had no plan for Sorcery originally. Well, not not as such. My original plan for Sorcery was I wanted to build it. I wanted it to exist, and I thought um, this would be quite a useful thing to have as a secondary project, like a little thing that runs in the background, maybe generates a bit of money that, that helps me plug the gaps because I was doing mostly contract work and I mm-hmm. would do occasional products to supplement that. So Sorcery wasn't the first. I'd done a bunch of them, some of which failed abysmally and some of which were okay. Like I did I did a plug-in for Ogre that combined a speed tree with, with Ogre and they used that more easily and I sold that to a bunch of people as well. But I wanted something that was maybe a little bit more general because uh, Ogre Speedtree was very specific to people who were both using Ogre and also using Speedtree. So it was kind of a nice thing to have a product which could apply to a bunch more people. Still quite a niche because it's still developers and on Mac at that point. Mm -hmm. But still, it's it's wider than it was before. So yeah, um, I've been doing this. I'd expect it just to boot along on the on the side for a while. And it started to do very well after about six months. And I realized, hang on, it's it's getting to the point where I could probably just do this full time for a while, and it was just where it crossed that threshold that I just had an email to say, "Hey, we really like this. You know, our, one of our joint CEOs uses it all the time. We'd like to have such have a chat about potentially joining Atlassian." And at the time, that was completely out of the blue. I hadn't planned anything like that, and I very almost just said no, just out of principle, because you know I wasn't ready. I was. It wasn't anything I was looking for, particularly, and I quite liked being independent you know i'm independent again now because that's the kind of setup i kind of like mm-hmm. what i realized is that you know sorcery I, I never really planned that to be my entire life mm-hmm. so i knew eventually i was going to want to pass it on to somebody i just kind of expected it to be a number of years down the line not as early as it was which was about 18 months after i started working on it and i realized when when i started talking to Alassian that out of all the people that i would potentially sell it to they were the people that i got on with the most you know mm. i could imagine all these other people who might want to buy it and i wasn't necessarily that enamored with that idea when i met the people from atlassian and talked to them and and they they gave me their sort of idea of where they would like to take it i realized that if i said no to this one then possibly when i came to a more natural point where i wanted to actually sell it on i wouldn't be able to find anyone anywhere near as you know compatible with my mm-hmm. view of things so it was earlier than i would have planned and earlier than perhaps i wanted but it was definitely the right party you know to partner with so we went we went for it and luckily it turned out okay and they keep on updating it and it's still a beautiful bit of software so it seems like that they were a good partner to you know the outcome seems to be pretty good from uh, yeah i mean so I don't know, you know how much I should sing their praises on this podcast, but you know they're a great company, and there's a whole bunch of people there who are just, you know, they're exactly the sort of people you'd like to work with. You know, very down to earth, very smart, and just really nice people to work with. And there's a group there, the, the sorcery team there now. I think is about five people. I forget who's full time on it and who's who's part time on it now, but I think it's at least five full time people now beavering away on it. 
and um, obviously that's two platforms as well so that's a fair amount of work mm-hmm. to manage they're two different code bases for one for each platform so there's a fair amount of stuff to do there but yeah um, good bunch of people and uh, cheeky question do you still use Sourcetree? oh yeah every day <laughs> I just literally just used it half an hour ago just to commit the stuff that I was doing before <laughs> I came down here so yeah I'm using it on Windows right now because I've switched back to Windows to do my game development work, but I've still got it. I've got it on my Mac here as well that I use when I'm doing testing on Mac. Right. And yeah, it's still my, my primary tool for version control. Yeah, I think at risk of sounding a little bit like I'm gushing, and um, certainly I think most of our listeners will appreciate that they're probably using something from the Atlassian team, whether it's you know Bitbucket for hosted Git or whatever. But SourceTree remains one of the tools that is a guaranteed install on a new development machine when I spin it up. Cool. It's that's, just that's always nice there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe let's kind of cast the net a little bit wider because obviously we've got an increasing, well, I suppose it isn't really an increasing pace of technological innovation, but it does seem like development is getting almost exponentially more and more broad. And from your perspective, what do you think is the biggest challenge that, the software development community is facing right now as we kind of move through the next generation of tooling, of products, of companies. What kind of thing do you think is is going to be the stumbling block that could be our undoing? (laughs) That's an interesting question. I don't know that I would agree that it's ever more diverse now because what I see, maybe it's just because I'm outside that community mostly, I, I see people coalescing around JavaScript a lot more than I would have necessarily expected a number of years ago mm. in terms of that you can write your entire ecosystem, whether it's, you know, the clients, uh, the web clients, the, the web server, the, you know, na- desktop client that looks native. You can use JavaScript for all of that now. And there was a time when, you know, to do any of those things, you would need to know at least three languages, maybe four. So in, in a way, it's, it's never been easier to be a, a developer, I think. Although the pace of change of that technology is probably significantly higher than than it has been so i guess you know uh it's a bit of a toss-up as to whether that's easier or not but in terms of challenges i come at things from a slightly different angle to maybe some which is i'm doing game development again now and it's become quite an issue recently that most developers are trained classically in object-oriented code. I mean, I know I was, or actually, technically, I wasn't trained in object-oriented code. I, I learned it as part of my maturation as a developer. I was actually originally taught mm-hmm. very sort of functional procedural code in plain C and, and stuff like that. But as I built larger and larger systems and more and more sophisticated systems, object orientation was very much the way that was considered the gold standard of how you would design these things. And it's it's very natural for people, for humans, to consider problems in, in an object-oriented way. It definitely produces code which, you know, if you know the, the real-life things you're dealing with, you can probably find the bit of code that's supposed to deal with it because just by nature of, you know, the the parallels between the two environments. But what's happened in recent years, and it's certainly... It's certainly come to the attention of game developers perhaps earlier than than some is that object orientation is extremely bad at handling a lot of problems and particularly the kind of problems that we're getting now now that uh, moore's law has fallen off a cliff so to speak and isn't delivering the goods like it used to because object orientation is is very bad at managing parallelism Mm -hmm. it's not a very good abstraction when it comes to let's split this particular job into five thousand smaller jobs which all run at once 
And it's also not very cache friendly. There's a lot of padding involved when you combine lots of data into, into one structure and hide how it's how it's actually physically structured underneath it. So yeah, game developers, we discovered this. I mean, Ogre, for example, is uh, its very name implies its object orientation. It was originally came from the acronym uh, Object Oriented Graphics Rendering Engine. So you know, you can see what my thinking was there. But unfortunately, this was I designed it at a time where this made perfect sense because Moore's Law was still fully in flow. We were all single core CPUs just getting faster and faster the whole time, and it it made sense that we could you know finally some, use some of these abstractions that we just couldn't use before because hardware was too simple to be able to do it. So. Unfortunately, what happened is obviously single core performance stopped going up as fast as it did, and uh, everything went across to multi core and and distributed systems in general. And uh, unfortunately, when you start using object orientation to hide how your data is structured, it tends to make being safe in parallelism and also being efficient with parallelism much more difficult than if you took it from a much more primitive standpoint and just looked at it as data and functions which operate on data and that is way easier to handle when it comes to making sure things don't stomp over each other when they're trying to work on shared data and also partitioning it and making it friendly to caches for example so yeah i think that's going to be a difficult transition Mm -hmm. not everybody's going to have to learn it all at the same time like i say people who are very concerned with performance are definitely feeling it already it's definitely an issue when it comes to mobile development because uh, obviously even if you say, oh, it doesn't matter, my, my CPU is fast enough, I, people won't notice, it'll be fine. You have the issue that any power that you're using that you're not using efficiently is just draining the battery. And people don't like it when you're, you're, their battery doesn't last as long. So there's that. And there's other things like machine learning, which is very data heavy and doesn't like it when you abstract it too much because you end up, again, with the same sort of cache problems not accessing things in order not not keeping things parallel enough because you can't split things up without knowing because you're not supposed to know how the data is represented under the surface so you don't know how to split it up you know there's those sorts of challenges that i think more and more people will start encountering it doesn't mean that you can't use object orientation it just means that there are aspects of your code that can't be object oriented and performant at the same time unfortunately that's that's unless somebody comes along and suddenly invents a cpu that is back like it used to be where it didn't matter and you could just burn through as many cycles as you wanted and and data as you wanted in any order then that'd be great but probably not going to happen yeah. <laughs> certainly i can agree having witnessed kind of the rise or the not the rise of the the return of functional the functional paradigm mm. and the fact that fair enough a million hipsters can't be wrong right <laughs> <laughs> wait i can argue with you on that. this stuff is is clearly being driven by you know massive increases in parallelism whether that's you know gpu based software or even you know you made reference to mobile increasingly the mobile devices that we see coming out have gone so far from that single cpu to to multi-core, multi-different levels of power, different levels of processing, and and you know, different approaches to trying desperately to break up these limited resources. So I think I can definitely see that the functional revolution is in full swing. As to whether or not it will remain in full swing, well, I'm guessing that will depend on what's o- what comes over the hill next, but I'm yeah. not aware of anything that will unseat it. Well, Intel are working on these holographic uh, I say they're working, they demoed a quantum chips already in uh, last year. So they're already getting to this, this point that it, like function might not matter anymore because you're going to have whole different problems about the state of your object because it's going to be, you know, in a quantum state. 
Yeah, I'd probably just clarify that we're not necessarily talking about functional programming. Functional is one approach to to like a data-driven approach. Yeah. You can quite easily write a more parallelizable function in just a procedural language. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just plain C, simple functions, not even, you know, not, not talking about Haskell and all, all the, you know, high-level functional uh, stuff. You can, there, there's also a bunch of other languages which are becoming more and more popular now, like Go and Rust and stuff like that, which are... Uh, they're not functional. They can pretend to be functional sometimes, but they can also be sort of slightly object-oriented as well. It kind of depends on how you use them. But they expose things in such a way that they're more aware of the kind of issues that can happen, particularly with parallel code and shared data and that sort of thing. And they're just a bit more explicit about how you manage that. So it doesn't necessarily mean we all have to become you know, super hipster functional programmers. It just means that we perhaps need to except that we can't hide everything behind too many layers of abstraction and, and think that that is necessarily the best design anymore. Simplicity does have a, has a significant value when it comes to code that is paralyzable. In fact, any code, really. I, I, as I get older, the more I start to appreciate the simpler constructs when it comes to programming. I like to say that I, I, I spent you know my, my 20s and maybe early 30s learning how to make more and more complicated code, and then I spent the rest of my time up until now, as a mid-40s, unlearning all of that and learning how to make everything simple again, because all that complexity just made everything worse. I, I've, I started, I think, writing in Perl and VRML, and I've <laughs> just gone downhill like in simplicity from there. I'm trying to go simpler, simpler. Since I started out in that. You just get to the point where, you know, you just don't write code anymore. Simple. Done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. That's called management. You get to the management point to make other people write code. <laughs> so uh, kind of flipping it on its head, you know, the challenges notwithstanding, we are, I mean, I take your point that potentially there isn't that increase in breadth. It does seem like there is a bit of a, a push for more newer variants of the same thing because at the same time we have kind of new languages popping up right left and center in a way that perhaps didn't happen for quite some time we've got new paradigms that are being rolled out we've got stuff that's being rediscovered and and retooled and in the midst of all of this obviously we've got things like you know this massive push for increased parallelization we've got the potential for qubits and quantum nonsense around the corner um so what do you think is currently the greatest opportunity for a, a developer working in the the wonderful time that is 2018? So to answer that, I kind of need to think about what your goals are, because there's various different ways to approach being a developer, depending on what you want to do. So if what you want to do is is be working on the most fashionable stuff, be the most maybe attractive to the widest amount of developers, then I I think you can't go wrong at the moment with either JavaScript or a a version uh, or something that sits above JavaScript, like TypeScript or you know something like that. That's clearly the most marketable skill at the moment. If that's not necessarily what you're looking for, if you're looking, you know, perhaps to make your own products and things like that, then it really doesn't matter what you use. Um, no one cares at the end of the day. This is the interesting thing that a lot of people don't really appreciate is when you're making products, the person that's buying your product does not care. A, a damn about what you used to make it, how clever it was, how amazing the code looked. None of that matters. All that matters is that it does what they want and it does it the most uh, efficiently and the most friendly that it, that it can and that you respond quickly to their feedback. So biggest opportunity there is just use whatever appeals to you the most and allows you to execute on what it is that you're trying to produce as quickly as possible and as effectively as possible. Don't listen to anyone saying you must be using this code, you must be using this language, you must be using this framework. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. And I get frustrated when, when people sort of 
fixate on what is the big framework of the time you know no one cares <laughs> developers care sometimes but you know it, it doesn't matter and i really need to I, I feel like shaking people sometimes it's like you know what are you fixating on this stuff for there's much more important things to think about than which framework it is you're using you know but in terms of like opportunities just generally you know which business opportunities there are uh, this kind of depends on whether you're looking for funding or whether you're looking just to create things. And those are two very different things. So <laughs> the thing is, when, when you're looking for funding, if that's the kind of, if you need lots of money to be able to, you know, build out a team and, and build something that's very ambitious or, or grows very quickly, you can't go wrong with trying to go with whatever is the buzzword or hype of the time. I don't particularly like this. I never go for this. Blockchain? Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. There's your latest sugar to sprinkle on top of whatever proposal it is that you've got. Um, and I, I know people, I've known people who've, who've done this, you know, that they're good people they're fine but their approach is, you know they'll just surf whatever wave it is that's going on right now if they can put together a proposal that addresses that and includes the right buzzwords that they can suffice on that for a reasonable amount of time at least until the next wave comes along and that's fine you know if you want to be a consultant or you want to be doing contract development on the latest sort of hyped things then then great just do do that follow the hypes if you're looking for something that is going to be the next big thing, then you probably need to be looking on things that are completely off everyone else's radar. And this is, I, I don't at all claim to be any good at picking the next big thing, but if you're worried about making whatever the next big thing is, I normally tell people not to worry about whatever is being hyped right now, because whatever's being hyped right now, you're probably too late for anyway, except for doing contracting or just getting funding for the next also ran you know, version of that. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine if that's what you want to do. It gives you good experience. It's a good ride. Um, but if if you're really looking to do something new, then it's totally fine to do something that is not being hyped right now and no one cares about because those are the things that will potentially become hyped or become fashionable in a few years' time when suddenly everyone does care about them. But you know, to have any chance at all of being a leader in that sort of arena, you really need to have been thinking about it way before anyone else was. So you know, it's a bit of a trite thing, but the greatest opportunities are the ones that no one's talking about. And therefore, none of us really know about them, except the people who are working these little niches that no one else is really paying any attention to. And those people are being told, why are you working on that when there's this really hot thing over here that you could be working on that everyone's talking about and paying loads of money for? So, you know, don't worry if you're the person working on this little niche because you could be the next big thing, you know. All that really matters... You're still, still off to the left of the of the hype curve. You aren't even yeah. on it yet. Yeah, and, and that's... <laughs> That's a totally fine place to be. Uh, all that really matters is that you know you can add some sort of value to something, and and you can normally judge that yourself based on is there something that I want out of this? Is there something that I could see a different spin on? Even if someone is doing it already, there's almost certainly another way of doing it, or a different you know blend of things that you can put towards it, a different feel, whatever it is. Everybody has a spin on something that they can you know tune and and find an audience for. So you know definitely go for that. If whatever you think is an opportunity. It probably is. Whether it's financially viable or not is a question to be answered later. But, you know, the most important thing, in my view, is just to try and do it and try and figure out a way of doing it, even if that means you're being very scrappy and doing it part time like I did for a very long time. That's totally fine. You don't have to be chasing the big hyped, big VC popular thing, whatever that is right now. You know, do whatever else speaks to you, because if it speaks to you, it'll it'll speak to somebody else as well. And that's kind of more important. I've blown your minds, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to let Mark jump in, actually, because <laughs> I've asked last handful. All right. So this is going to the future, but what are you working on now? I hear you're doing game development. Yeah, so finally I've got back to game development. 
Um, it's did. a big circus. It's a big curve, isn't it? It's like uh, yeah, you kind of got distracted by the tools that <laughs> you were using to make game development. And well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I originally tried to get a, a job in game development back when you know late teens. Didn't quite manage it, so I just did stuff in, in my spare time. Ended up having to build an engine to do that. Then spent ten years just building the engine because that became really popular. <laughs> and then ended up doing Sorcery, which then distracted me for another seven years. <laughs> And again, that wasn't intended to be the main thing that I did. It just ended up as the thing that took off and therefore I followed it for a while. So yeah, finally, I'm back doing game development. This time I've decided not to make an engine because I'll just be another 10 years doing that. So let's not get distracted again. Um, And yeah, so myself and my wife are are making games together. We've got our first one almost finished now. It's called Washed Up, which is like an action puzzling game, which we're putting on Itch.io and on Steam hopefully quite soon so yeah we've, we've got a whole bunch of plans for the next few games as well um we'll run this for a while and see whether we can make it work it's a very uh, competitive marketplace i dare say for game development yes absolutely we've probably entered it exactly the wrong time <laughs> <laughs> but you know there is there, there is no other way you can do it you know they, they always say that the the best time to do something is when you start it, because otherwise you wouldn't have done it. So right. uh, this has been the time that has been most optimal for us personally, mm-hmm. in terms of being able to take the risk of doing game development for a while. Mm-hmm. Whereas before we could only do it, you know, spare time and just as, as sidelines and just have to follow whatever else was successful after that, which is why I ended up going to the engine and doing doing sorcery. So now I've had the opportunity to, to reboot it for a while. It, it may completely fail. And that'll be fine. Um, and we'll do, some, we'll do something else. Is Washed Up made in Ogre? No, I'm using Unity because I know okay. that if I used Ogre, I would just get sucked right back in to doing the um, engine again. Fiddling, right. Uh, yes. So I had to do something that I couldn't fiddle with. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, even, Unity. Oh, Unity, don't, they don't have an open source branch, right? They have a... No, there, there's various bits of it that are open source. Um, right. Or at least not... Well, some some bits are open source. Some bits are just publish only source. So they right. allow the source to be read, but you're not allowed to to change it or Commit. or to give back on it. Yeah, there's like a whole different bunch of tiers on it. There's uh, mm-hmm. you can actually get hold of the source code if you pay a like an enterprise license or something like that. But right. uh, I haven't really needed to yet. We're only doing relatively simple things at mm-hmm. the moment. So we're so fine. that's good to keep you distracted. Like that's good yeah. to stop you being getting distracted and saying, ah, oh, I need to change this. Absolutely. I mean, I've already ended up contributing back to a whole bunch of different open source projects around Unity, mm-hmm. but I've managed to stay away from getting too distracted, which is, that was the intention of using a third party engine this time. I mean, there's some very nice things with Unity, which is that you're able to create uh, components that actually ha- create a whole UI within the editor and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So you can create some very interesting UI things that, well, they're not for the game, but you can still build, you know, a whole range of tooling within the tool itself. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, previously I, I've built some tools around Ogre using things like Qt and WX widgets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not actually sure what you need to use this for, for theirs, but yeah, it's, they, they've done quite a good job when it comes to extensibility in, in the engine. I've built little extra tools myself in there as well. Like I, I built a uh, a little 2D spline tool that I, I used for a previous prototype that I, I made and just made that open source. And it's got its own little UI for you know, uh, adding the points to a spline and then dividing it up equally and making sure that things follow it at an equal speed and that, that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's quite nice that I, I can actually tinker with it a little bit, but mm-hmm. there's a bit of a firewall between me and the rest of it, so I can't just accidentally end up you know 
neck deep in in code on the <laughs> engine and nowhere at all near my own game right so how long have you been developing the game so uh, we up. actually yeah we actually started this game at the global game jam last year mm-hmm. so 2017 january 2017 we, we had a prototype working at the end of that and we just put it aside for quite a few months and i worked on some other prototypes and in the end i decided well i quite, I quite like that original prototype and it's quite nice because at the time we didn't know whether we would be able to work together myself and my wife we'd never really done it before on a creative project she's mm-hmm. the artist and i'm the programmer and she's always doing her own creative things and i'm doing main things with code and we'd never actually got together and, and tried to make something as a joint project and we thought is that going to work you know are we gonna you, you never know when you know, personal relationships versus work relationships, you don't know whether you know, how that's going to pan out. And luckily, it, it worked. So I'd been working on my own prototypes, and I thought, well, I kind of liked it when we were working together, so let's try that and mm-hmm. take it a bit further. So, yeah, sort of mid-last year, mid-summer sort of time, we picked it up again and kind of expected to get it done before the end of the year, but it's amazing how many little things there are that you don't realise you have to do when it comes to game development. So I spent an awful long time just making a system, for example, that automatically could take localized strings and insert little button images for reconfigurable controls right. and was dynamic enough that, you know, when you wiggle a stick on a PlayStation 4 controller, it turns into an X. Yep. And when you wiggle a controller over here on the 360, it, you know, turns into an A and the mouse picks it up at various times and then the keyboard and everything else just switches nicely all together with different languages. Potentially it's that took me like, a month to do which i didn't really anticipate so all the little things like that have have pushed out the end date quite significantly so because there's, there's a crazy matrix there that you have like all the languages all the consoles all the platforms that you're going to be deploying for and then you've got the weird use cases that you can have switch and mobile which have got slightly different paradigms it's not like just like an x it might be like a tap or a double tap or a you know yeah, that kind I mean, of thing in a way, I'm starting with the hardest one because I'm doing PC. So you can plug anything okay. into a PC. So sure. I've had to buy loads of controller, loads of different controllers that I wouldn't normally use because otherwise I just can't test that they work properly. Yeah. So yeah, it's not quite so bad. It's the hardest thing actually is switching between a controller and the mouse and keyboard because you know normally when you've got a controller, it's just one controller, so you know you know the the bounds of it. Right. When you switch to a mouse and keyboard, obviously the person could be using keyboard and the mouse, or they could just be using just the mouse. And depending on what the last thing used was, you need to contextualize the things that you could do, particularly with the tutorial. So yeah, I didn't find the controller too bad. It was more switching between mouse and keyboard and controllers and getting that to behave nicely. And are you building this out targeting, you say obviously targeting PC first, mm-hmm. are you also looking to build this out into mobile potentially get it onto things like the switch which is frankly i should imagine for a game developer a bit of a pardon my french head because <laughs> you've got you know all the different form factors it can be on a 55 inch 4k television although not in 4k or it can just be on the, the the device itself so have you thought much about that yeah so the initial plan is to go for pc mac and then probably the ipad next because it tends to suit that but actually the switch i'd love to go on the switch um i don't currently have a development kit for it but hopefully if you know we get to a certain point where nintendo will give us one then we'll probably look at that but the thing is the switch isn't actually too bad because the switch is at least even though you can be at two different resolutions uh either on the handheld or on the tv it's still the same aspect ratio and that's the difficult bit Mm -hmm. is when you switch aspect ratio so at the moment on the pc for example we've got three standard aspect ratios that we support um one is standard um 16 by 9 you know standard hd sort of aspect another one is the typical mac laptop resolution which is 16 by 10 for some reason (laughs) 
So that's slightly taller, which has a few issues with making sure that like your tile screens fit correctly. And then we've got one for ultra wide, which are for the crazy nutters like some of my friends who have the really you know massively wide twenty one by nine, super wraparound curved monitors that you know they can right. they can just have wrapping around their entire face. It seems so. We still support that, and you know it has to look correct in that sort of aspect. So that's actually trickier than than handling the switch. I'm hoping that if we do eventually get a switch development kit, the port for that should be relatively easy because it does work very well with a controller uh, and that aspect ratio. So that would be kind of perfect for it. From what I've heard from the trenches, working with the switch has been actually a lot more pleasurable than you would imagine. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm hearing. I have no personal experience with it, but they say that like porting games to the Switch has been quite good. Yeah, it's it's quite friendly from what I hear. There's quite a few people I know who've, who've worked on it and it seems to be pretty good. It's just, it seems like at the moment to actually get a development kit for it, you have to have some sort of existing relationship with Nintendo or have met them and they'd be impressed by you at a, at a certain show, etc. So we're, we're a bit early days for that yet, but hopefully we'll get a bit of traction at some points and be able to port it. We'll see. Probably, I mean, the golden window for Switch has probably passed now. There was, you know, the early stages of the Switch was very good yeah. for indies. So, you know, that has already passed. But then again, you know, we're dealing with, with Steam and supposedly the indie apocalypse of having so many titles going on Steam every every month. Um, we're not worrying too much about that, though, because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't do anything about it. So you might as well just have a go and see how you get on. Well, now, now that I presume GDPR came in, Steam had to shut down a lot of the data that they were publishing about people. So mm-hmm. Steam Spy, which was giving us uh, all the statistics about gaming, has kind of had to shut down. So mm-hmm. now there might be less news about the apocalypse, even though it's probably happening, just simply because we don't get any more stats. About yeah, it. I think uh, it. I mean, it was it was kind of useful to know. It's kind of, just from a curiosity point of view, it's quite nice to have a poke around and see how many. You know, it's not necessarily very super accurate, but the, to have an impression, comparatively anyway, of what sort of things we're selling. But after a while, I kind of realised that maybe it was uh, not damaging, but just it maybe I have a thing about statistics that in a way that they're very useful to give you this supposedly unbiased view of things. But at the same time, they kind of they become self-fulfilling mm. sometimes in the particularly with multiplayer games you know people would look on steam spy and say oh look this game isn't getting very much traction people aren't playing it very much so i won't buy it even though i think it looks good right you know? and that becomes then therefore a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that lots of people don't buy it because there's not many people playing it yet even though they might like it and they don't buy it whereas if they didn't have that visibility potentially they might have just bought it anyway because it looked good and that would have pushed the numbers up so yeah i think maybe it's not not a bad thing that that's become a little bit more limited now in visibility even though it's kind of nice to know yeah it's, i think you're right i mean the, because there were so many games being pushed out and of course you don't know there's massive uh i'm trying to i'm not it's not clickbaity but there were asset flippers as well that were putting out like hundreds of games that could mm-hmm. completely skew those statistics and say well yeah th- there's thousands of games going on yeah but if the thousand of those games are people that have literally uh uh, just changing the assets on their game and publishing the Christmas button mashing, the Easter button mashing. The there's a lot of cases of these kind of just changing stuff. Yeah. But yeah, um, I think it's a good time actually to be an indie because you're getting a lot of exposure. Like people are interested in stuff that's different, the, the games that are not just coming out of the big publishing houses. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I think there's more appreciation now of the breadth of interest of people i mean in the past maybe there might have 
been an impression that there were a certain group of gamers who did one thing and a certain group of gamers who did one another thing like maybe there's you know your typical core gamers and then your typical you know casual gamers that might have been a classification that mm. had been used in the past but i think if anything although the kind of crowding in the market makes things more difficult to get some coverage it does at least show that well there is actually an audience for all kinds of things it's there's this big spectrum of taste and you don't have to be you know specifically in this one camp over here or this one camp over here there's there's plenty of people in the middle and a lot of old niche things which which go on which which are good as well so yeah it's, i'm not underestimating the challenge at all of, of getting any kind of exposure in this sort of environment but at the same time we're all in, in the same sort of boat um and you just have to kind of do as best you can and try and learn as you go i think there's not really much else you can do and that's with life isn't it <laughs> indeed so steve how can people get in touch with you what's a good way to uh, to get back to you to find out more about the game assuming you want them to get in touch with you <laughs> um I'm sure well my public persona i guess is on twitter which is at steve streeting have you got one of these weird twitter accounts that are your actual name like- i do yeah i'm, I'm perhaps it's because i'm a, of a certain age that i i didn't yeah. sort of grow up with some sort of persona I, 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 actually that's that's lying i did i ended up using the the, the name sinbad on every uh, source control system around so i had to jump in on github and bitbucket whenever they were launched i always had to make sure i had that um, <laughs> but no i don't i don't sort of pretend to be that anywhere else other than my code so yeah i just use a standard name awesome so on twitter steve streeting yep and you anywhere else i'm you also have a website over yeah i've got a, i've got a i've got a blog at stevestreeting.com and our game company is called old doorways that's myself and my wife and we live at olddoorways.com olddoorways.com okay we'll put this in the show notes and we can be found, and, and cunningly enough, at Mark Drew. And at Robert Lee. <laughs> so we all have just like... Or together, <laughs> um, at Localhost FM, if you want to tweet the podcast. And we have a Facebook page, which I'm not sure how long we'll keep, because I think, uh, Rob, have you left Facebook yet? I may have quit Facebook last week. Yeah, so we'll... Fa- well, yeah, I'm not on Facebook. Yeah. So, you know, now that I remember to put our Facebook link, uh, now that everyone has left Facebook, but if you want to catch us on Facebook, we're facebook.com forward slash localhost FM. And actually, on that note, I appreciate that we're wrapping up, but as I'm speaking to developers, uh, potentially web developers, do me a favor. If you are building a system that has some form of social authentication, i.e. log in with Facebook or, or Google or whatever it is, please make sure you've considered the edge case of a user who no longer has that account. Ah, uh, yeah. I have been locked out of so many flipping systems over the past week, it doesn't bear thinking about. Because, oh, that's a social account. You can only log in with a social account. It's nonsense. Oh. Anyway, as you were. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point, though. I think we might have to touch on that on another episode, the death to Facebook episode that's coming up. We can do that in our grumpy year in review. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Steve. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to my uh, my wild ramblings that I, I did warn you about. But <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. We'll cut it out in the edit. Yeah. We're going to leave this in. We're totally going to leave this in. <laughs> we are. And meanwhile, we'll be back in a bit. I don't quite know what our timeline is, and I don't really know what our next episode's on either. But we are coming back to do another one, so there we go. Vaguest stay tuned ever. <laughs> no, we'll be back soon. And on that note, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rob. Good night.